All right, good morning. My name is Trevor. Um, I'm one of the pastoral residents here. And uh, I've realized that there are two types of people in this world. There are uh, normal people who love Chick-fil-A, and then there's Stephen Rutland. Um, if you don't know, what you may not know about Stephen is that, for whatever reason, he does not like Chick-fil-A. Uh, I, on the other hand, could eat Chick-fil-A every meal of every day. In fact, I would get a number one, Will Blackman agrees to me, I would get a number one with extra pickles, extra large fries if that existed. Have you ever had enough Chick-fil-A waffle fries? Never. Exactly. I would get an extra large jug of, of lemonade mixed with sweet tea, the classic Arnold Palmer, and then I'd get the appropriately named Ice Dream smothered with chocolate syrup. And I would eat that every day. I, I wouldn't maintain this chiseled physique you see before me, but I would, uh, I would eat that every single day. And it, really, what, what is there not to love about Chick-fil-A? What other restaurant, when you go in, every time you say thank you, responds with, my pleasure. My, yeah, exactly. Thank you. My pleasure. Every single time, like going to Chick-fil-A and try and, uh, going to Chick-fil-A and try and have the last word with thank you, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Um, interestingly, in, interestingly enough, Truett Cathy, the, the founder of Chick-fil-A, after attending the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, and someone said, my pleasure, decided that he would implement that terminology because he believed that it, it exemplified the core values of Chick-fil-A, that uh, Chick-fil-A as a people-first company would behave in such a way that it exemplified those values. Not unlike Chick-fil-A, uh, we've adopted some core values. Our, our DNA series uh, the past several weeks have been about exploring what renewal is all about. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege, privilege of talking about church multiplication. Uh, several weeks ago, Tubby began our series talking about gospel transformation. That uh, he, he did an excellent job painting our uh, dire state uh, prior to knowing Christ, that we're, we're dead in our sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. The gospel transforms us, makes us alive, and, and continues to transform us daily. Two weeks ago, Matt uh, from Galatians 6 taught on biblical community that is, as messy humans, we're going to require burden-bearing. And we're going to be required to bear burdens for our brothers and sisters. Last week, Matt taught from 1 Peter chapter 2 on uh, missional engagement, that as God's people, we're a kingdom of priests, that we've, we've been called and chosen in order that we could proclaim the excellencies of God in Christ to the nations. And this week, we're going to explore the Great Commission and uh, uh, the way that Jesus commissions his church to multiply itself. So if you would, pray with me, and uh, we'll get started. Father, we uh, come before you thankful, uh, thankful for the rain, um, thankful that because of rain we have, we have crops and we have food and, and we have life and we think we're, we're thankful for the sunshine that because of the sunshine these crops can grow and, and uh, we can have fun outside in your creation and, and, and we're thankful for your church that you've provided Mitchell Road Elementary School that uh, we can meet in. Um, that you've given us your scriptures in English uh, so that we can know you. You've provided the leadership here at Renewal. Um, we're thankful for uh, what they mean to us, and we're thankful for what these people here who uh, populate this room mean to the leadership. Father, this morning as we, as we look at Matthew chapter 28, I ask that you would bring clarity, um, that you would motivate us to action, uh, that you would lead us to repentance where we are in need of repentance. And ultimately, you would glorify your name uh, through the proclamation of your word and uh, the demonstration of your son. Lord, you are good, and we ask for grace this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, uh, verses 18 through 20. 
And as Matt has stated, one of the dangers of uh, essentially topical preaching like we've been doing the past couple weeks is that you, you tend to kind of have a parachute effect into the scripture. I compare this to the, uh, the ceiling fan of hermeneutics I used as a teenager. This is a true story. I would, hey, this is so embarrassing. I would close my eyes. Uh, I would go into my room at night to do my quiet time. I would close my eyes. I would open up the Bible and I would real piously say, Lord, just, just use the ceiling fan to turn to whatever passage you want me to read today. And then the ceiling fan would turn the pages. Wherever it landed, I would read. And that was my method of hermeneutics. Unless it landed like Leviticus or Lamentations, because that was certainly didn't want me to read there, you know. So uh, that, that would be the approach that I would take to the scriptures. Obviously, that's not what we advocate, and that's not what we want to do today. So as such, let's explore the topic or, or the gospel of Matthew. Uh, if you know anything about Matthew, you know that Matthew wrote this gospel as a, a testament as to the identity of Jesus. And he's writing to the Jewish community. Matthew's aiming to establish two things about Jesus. First, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ of Israel. Jesus is the one who would restore Israel, the one who would defeat these oppressive pagan nations, the one who would lead a new exodus in the vein of Moses, and the one who would ultimately restore God's reign in the Holy Land. From verse 1 in the book of Matthew, this is established. Matthew writes about this book. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham saying that Jesus is ultimately related to David, the one who, uh, who was promised to have a king who would reign forever. The second thing that Matthew wants to establish Jesus as is God himself. First century Jews were awaiting God's Messiah to pave the way for Yahweh so that Yahweh could return to his dwelling place, the temple of Jerusalem. Matthew, however, unexpectedly states that God has indeed returned, but as the God-man Jesus. When the messenger of the Lord appears to Joseph, um, de describing the child in, in Mary's womb, uh, the messenger of the Lord says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the rest of the book is characterized uh, by these two ideas, that Jesus is Messiah and Jesus is God. Story after story, Old Testament reference after Old Testament reference, the book of Matthew is painting the picture that Christ is the fulfillment of Jewish expectation. You can't read a story and you can't uh, read any of the way Jesus identifies himself in the book and escape what Matthew is trying to prove here. And when we flip all the way to the very last few sentences of the book of Matthew, these two themes still persist. So in Matthew chapter 28, what we're about to read, we have Jesus who has lived 33 years. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection has been all about accomplishing that which the Messiah ought to have accomplished the, the restoration of God's reign and ultimately the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. So if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28 and we'll read together. Jesus says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now the thing about all authority is that it's authority and it's all of it. And the thing about all authority in heaven and earth is that it's all of the authority on heaven and on earth. And the thing about this authority that Jesus is saying that he now has is that this authority has been given to him. 
Now, uh, for a first century Jew who's reading this passage, uh, their minds would immediately retreat to Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel chapter 7 during this time was repeated over and over and over. This was uh, a, a, a prophecy that's emblematic as to the identity of the Messiah, the one who would restore Israel. I'll read that for us right here. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 says this. This is Daniel speaking about this vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, being God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Eighty-two times in the Gospels does Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, directly identifying himself with the character presented in Daniel chapter 7. Okay, so... Let's think about this. So Jesus lived a super humble life, right? Like Jesus was a carpenter. Jesus was born from Bethlehem. Jesus is from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And he approaches his disciples after he's been murdered and is uh, supposedly resurrected. He, he appears to his disciples who are still having a difficult time believing and says, Daniel chapter 7 one like a son of man presented to the ancient of days and given a kingdom that will last forever? This is fulfilled today in your hearing. Jesus is identifying himself with that figure, saying, this is who I am. And so when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, this isn't just a statement about how Jesus is in control of the weather. Jesus is saying, I have now accomplished that which you were waiting to be accomplished, the restoration of God's reign. And he's saying, I did this through my paradoxical humility, my death, uh, my, my bearing of mankind's sin, and ultimately my resurrection. And then he says to him this. This is, this is peculiar. He says, therefore. Now, the thing about therefore is it's important to know what it's there for. You can, you can quote me on that one. I know. He says, therefore, go disciple all nations. Therefore, go disciple all nations. Now, certainly this was puzzling to Jesus' disciples. And they, they, all throughout the book, they've been pretty opaque. You read the Gospels, and it's interesting that what's considered essentially the, the, the initial founders of the church are presented oftentimes as boneheads. Um, but they're still pretty puzzled as to what Jesus is actually doing here. And so when he says that all authority has been given to me. The kingdom of God has been established in my death, burial, and resurrection. Now go disciple the nations. These guys are still like, hold on a second. Isn't Daniel chapter 7 supposed to be the nations being defeated? Isn't Daniel chapter 7 supposed to be uh, the Messiah being exalted to rule over these nations, and to get revenge? Isn't that what's going on here? Now, let's notice the first uh, three things about this first. First, we've got to address the fact that this is the first time in Scripture that Jesus, or rather that God, sends a community. Now, there's a few isolated instances where, where God sends individuals. You, you think of Jonah, maybe the story of Elijah. But this is the first time that, uh, that God establishes his people as being fundamentally sent. We've also got to understand that this is not just tasks given to individuals. We've got to understand that this is an identity given to a community. Now, our traditional understanding of the Great Commission goes something like this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples. And so go to Zimbabwe and don't be afraid because Jesus promises that he's going to be with you. 
We're not saying that the Great Commission is less than that, but we're saying it's so much more. What Jesus does here is says that the authority of heaven and earth has been given to me. Daniel chapter 7 says the nations will come into that kingdom, and Jesus is sending a community. Jesus is sending his people to actualize Daniel chapter 7, to bring the nations into subservience to the person of Christ. One theologian said that this community has no life but in this sending. Um, I took this marine biology class in high school. And uh, for whatever reason, this stuck in my brain, probably because great white sharks are the most terrifying creatures on planet Earth. But um, great white sharks are what's called obligated ram breathers. I don't know what that means, but it just stuck, in, it stuck with me for some reason. Unlike a lot of fish, great white sharks don't have the lung capacity to pump water through their gills in order to get oxygen. Like you see goldfish hanging out in a fishbowl and they're sitting there pumping their gills. Great white sharks have to stay in motion. So they have to be moving forward in order for the water to be going through their mouth and go through their gills for them to survive. I think that's a pretty appropriate illustration as to the identity of the sent community that Jesus sends out. That the community of God's people has no life but in its sending, has no life but in its motion. We, the church must be moving forward in order for the church to be breathing. You guys follow me there? The third thing we need to notice about this is that this community is a community. It is a community made of individuals, but it's a community. Jesus is sending out a people. The story of the Bible has always been about God redeeming a people. In the modern United States, the, the tendency for us is to read every instance of you in the Bible as if it meant me in the Bible. We've got to understand that God is about a people, not just you. Everybody follow me? So this begs the question. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go disciple the nations. Bring the nations into subservience to me. What does it mean to be a disciple? It seems like Jesus here uh, gives us uh, two things that characterize disciple making. Now, um, I'm not suggesting here that Jesus is, is saying that baptism and, and teaching, as we'll explore in a minute, are the, are, are the means by which disciples are made, but they are the characterization of disciple making. Jesus says this, Go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Baptism is the public identification with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It signifies entrance into a covenant community, and it therefore must be public. So right off the bat here with the Great, with the great Commission, we see that there's some element of disciple-making takes place in community. In order for baptism to be public, there's got to be a public to whom you're testifying to. Think historically and globally for a second. The act of baptism has been loaded with implications, unlike it is for us a lot of times today. Consider brothers and sisters in the early church and in militantly anti-Christian nations where, where baptism as a public identification with Christianity, a lot of times it isn't just uh, leaving former religious affiliations, but a lot of times it's, it's uh, cutting ties with, with your family. A lot of times it's, it's cutting ties with everything uh, that you knew before and all the people that you belonged to before. And so when Jesus says that we make disciples and, and disciple-making is characterized by baptism, there's a sense in which baptism must mean being introduced into a covenant family. 
Now, we're not saying that baptism is the means by which one is introduced into God's people, but it's a testament that I have indeed been introduced into God's people. The second thing that he says characterizes a disciple is obedience to Christ's command. Now, um, the word disciple is actually foreign to the Old Testament. Um, I did some word studies on the word disciple, and I couldn't find any instances in which the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used the word disciple. Uh, there's a couple theories here and there, but it's a relatively foreign concept. Uh, scholars believe that uh, Greek philosophers who would have these disciples follow them around, like think, think like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, they kind of had that relationship going on. These uh, Greek philosophers in the first century had that sort of disciple-teacher relationship, and first century Ju- Judaism kind of hijacked it for their own purposes. The Pharisees saw themselves as disciples of Moses, and so when Jesus takes this language and says, I'm making disciples for myself, there's, there, there's a sense w- in which we see Jesus as the one who uh, supersedes Moses, the one who, who now says the, the archway into God's people goes through me. It's no longer about uh, the, the people of Moses, it's about the people of Jesus. And so when Jesus says that discipling the nations um, is characterized by teaching obedience to Christ, he's saying that I am now central to the kingdom of God. Obedience to me and my commands and, and the things that I teach and my interpretation of the law, this is the archway through which you enter into the people of God, into the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm sure the, the disciples' minds are like, what is going on here? Totally confused as to what Jesus is saying. This is an unprecedented event in human history. This is the birth of the church. It's worthwhile to, here to distinguish between a disciple and a convert. Now, uh, disciple is language you're going to hear thrown around renewal a lot, a whole, whole lot. And we want you to be tired of hearing the phrase, multiplying disciples to the glory of God. That's a really great banner. Whoever designed it deserves a raise. So, um, that was a joke, because I designed it. We hope you get tired of hearing the phrase multiplying disciples to the glory of God because we're about disciple making. And the way you distinguish between a disciple and convert, I, I, think, I think works with this illustration. So imagine if you had two farmers. One farmer had a handful of seed and he walked out into a field and said, this looks like a good place to have a field and throws out a bunch of seed and stands there. Um, he's not going to yield much crop. Take a look at the second farmer. He has a handful of seed. He plows this field and he meticulously and intentionally plants each seed and waters it and nurtures it and loves it and watches it grow and flourish. That would be the difference between making converts and making disciples. On the one hand, just kind of tossing out seed, hoping for the best, just preach the gospel. If people accept it, they accept it. Multiplying disciples, on the other hand, it would be an intentional, purposeful pursuit of individuals, bringing them into the covenant community. Um, testified by baptism and characterized by the teaching of the, uh, the commands of Jesus. And then finally Jesus says this. After he's said all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, make disciples, baptize them, teach them, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As I suggested earlier, This passage is oftentimes presented as a way of saying, take courage, the presence of the Lord will be with you. And and I don't think it's less than that. But if we take a look at the parallel account of the Great Commission in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus says that this mission that he's giving to his disciples will be enabled and enlivened by the coming of the Spirit, 
I think we have to read, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, as a promise that there is one, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, who would come and mobilize the church to mission. In fact, I think Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 are structured, structured in such a way so that we would see um, Christ giving the instruction as to the identity of the church and then see Christ giving the, the means by which the church can have this identity, the Spirit. And so when he says, I am with you always to the end of the age, he is promising this mobilizing agent who would send God's people towards mission and move them out. And the, the, the disciples, they don't get this at first. And at first, they just kind of stick around in Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, we like Jesus' teaching. And God has to send persecution, and he spreads them out. And, and we, we continually see God's providence in the book of Acts as he's propelling his church outward and outward and, and, and to keep going. The, the, the church has no life but in this sending. And it takes uh, God's divine activity oftentimes for us to get this, just like it did the disciples. But we have to understand that the Gospels, and in particular, the Gospel of Matthew, is foundational literature of the early church. This is where they found their identity. Now, imagine that you're a first century Jew, and you're reading the book of Matthew, and, and you start in, in verse 1, and it's about Jesus, who is the descendant of David. You're like, yeah, yeah, I can get into this. And you're flipping through, and there's these, parallel, uh, uh, these parables about the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and, and you're seeing the way Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises, and you're moving forward, and you're getting excited, and you get to the very last words of the book, and it's, all authority has been given to me, now go. You would slam the book shut and be ready to run out of the doors, and, and, and in a lot of ways, that's kind of what we hope happens today, that uh, at the, the conclusion of the sermon, you guys are excited about, about running and proclaiming that Jesus is king and that Jesus has died for his people. Read Isaiah chapter 2 with me. It should be up on the screen. It says this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. This should be language that's set off alarms in your head. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I think in the Great Commission, we have Jesus saying that Passages like Isaiah chapter 2 are becoming true in me. And the command that he gives to the church is to bring the nations into the presence of God through Christ. It was unexpected. It was different than what uh, Israel expected. It was different than all these preconceived notions they had about the way God would restore the, uh, the nations. But nevertheless, Jesus commands his people to go. Now the thing about the Great Commission is there's not a whole lot of prescriptiveness towards it. Uh, uh, from it. Outside of teach obedience to Christ and baptize in the name of the Trinity, there's not a whole lot that we're told we're to do here with the Great Commission. Fortunately, we're not left there. We have the interpretation of the early church. And, and what we find out in the book of Acts is that the Great Commission always finds its, ex excuse me, always finds its expression and fulfillment in a local church body. I'm going to read that again because I butchered it the first time. What we learn from Acts is that the Great Commission always finds its expression and fulfillment in a local church body. 
Jesus called his people to replicate themselves. Health in the scriptures is always connected with fruitfulness and multiplication. Individually healthy Christians produce healthy Christians and corporately healthy churches produce healthy churches. Turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We'll start in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, uh, a little background here. In the book of Acts, we see the birth of the church, uh, the commissioning of Jesus, then the sending of the Spirit, birth of the church. And we see that um, these godly men begin to come into the picture, and and we see the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and lives of men. Stephen is an example. If you're familiar with the story of Stephen, uh, Stephen was a man who was killed for preaching that Jesus was indeed the Christ, and persecution broke out because of this. And this is one of those instances where we see God's providence, that uh, even in spite of the, the opaque tendencies of the disciples, God, through persecution, advances his gospel. I kind of think of it like a mud puddle. You can't, like, you can't stomp out a mud puddle. You just send the water elsewhere. So that's kind of the picture you get in the book of Acts, is anytime persecution comes to stomp out the church, they're not stomping out the puddle. They're just sending the water elsewhere. And so uh, this is the case here with um, with these, the, these disciples who have been scattered because of the persecution. And they travel 400, some of these disciples travel 450 miles north to what's called Syrian Antioch. This is a, a pagan city. It's a super diverse city, not unlike Corinth that we talked about several weeks ago. And we see that uh, there's some guys who, brave, uh, who are brave enough to do what Jesus commanded. Let's continue reading. But there were some of these men men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, or the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he, and when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, Saul being Paul the Apostle. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is a watershed moment in Christianity. This is when churches are planted outside of Jerusalem. This is when uh, we see God rescuing Gentiles. We see God through the work of church planting actualizing Daniel chapter 7, bringing the nations in subservience to Christ through the work of multiplying churches. These men who aren't even named carry the gospel with them wherever they go, and they're such aggressive disciples that churches are birthed when they land in Antioch. A natural question for us to ask is, could that be said of us? Individually, could you be tagged as an aggressive discipler that Churches just form around you because of the, the way, uh, the fervent passion you have for the Lord in, in making disciples. Just a few chapters later, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, diverts his attention for a few minutes, and then you flip back to, or a few chapters, rather, you flip back to Acts chapter 13, and you see, once again, we're at the church at Antioch. Chapter 13, starting in verse 1. 
Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, who was previously mentioned, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, being Paul the Apostle. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul and for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, Acts chapter 13, like this is, this is an all-star cast of Christians, right? You have Barnabas and Saul here, and they've been teaching for uh, several years now at the church at Antioch. And the Spirit mobilizes the church to send these guys, to be really open-handed with the men at their disposal, to send these guys out to begin a new work elsewhere. And this is over and over and over the model in the book of Acts. You see people uh, plant churches, and then those people go out and they plant churches, and those churches plant churches. And that's why we use the terminology multiplying churches. And renewal wants to be like this. Renewal has installed the phrase church multiplication into our five core values in order that we would communicate this same desire. We want to be aggressive multipliers. We want to multiply people and we want to multiply communities of people. At the risk of uh, overstating my case, I made this graphic right here. I got Trev to make this graphic for me, as Matt would say. What we see in the book of Acts is that there's an organic relationship between disciple-making in our workplace and in our neighborhoods and in our homes and the establishment of church bodies in our city. Ecclesiology is just a big word for church, study of church. Missiology is a big word for the study of missions. Over and over and over we see this cycle in the book of Acts. The church produces missionaries, the missionaries produce the church. The church produces missionaries, missionaries produce the church. Over and over and over. And this is what we want to embody as a church. This is why, uh, in a lot of ways, this is why I stand before you today. Um, I, I approached Matt, gosh, I guess it was um, almost two years ago, and said, uh, here I stand, I can do no other, <laughs> do something with me, I, I have a desire for ministry, and I felt like uh, by retreating to an institution, not that institutions are bad, but retreating to a seminary institution, I just couldn't get the training that I could get in the trenches, I couldn't uh, come before you today and, and botch sermons like I'm doing now. I, I wanted to get some real life experience, and and Matt brought me on. I mean, this this is one of the passions of Renewal is that they would uh, they would bring on young guys who aspire to leadership to be really open handed with and send out. One of the things uh, the leadership around here says very often is, we don't want to be a big church downtown who says let the masses flock to us. Uh, we want to be like McDonald's. A McDonald's is on every corner, a Starbucks. We want to be where the people are. That's what we're about. Now, for clarity's sake, when we say church planning and church multiplication, we acknowledge that there's a whole heck of a lot of baggage that goes with it. And so for clarity's sake, um, here's what I mean. With church, uh, church multiplication, we mean planting new churches. Statistics show that the primary means of reaching new and unengaged people groups in cities is by planting churches. Just in all actuality, new churches are going to reach people that old churches just don't reach. When we say church multiplication, we also mean that we, uh, we believe wholeheartedly in assisting and planting new churches. Right now, we give financially to a couple of churches in the area, uh, one in Easley in particular that's uh, just launched uh, just a, a couple of months ago that we actively give to because we believe in church planning. When we say church multiplication, we also mean revitalizing dying churches. Stats show that plants and revitalization efforts have rejuvenating effects in existing church networks. 
Um, there's nothing sweeter than seeing something old being refreshed and, and being made new and seeing a new work begin at a, maybe an old dying church structure, inserting life into that and seeing a new work begin. And when we say church multiplication, we mean reproducing church leaders. If we're going to be about making disciples individually and we're going to be about uh, multiplying churches, we've got to be about multiplying leaders. Um, again, as I mentioned, this is, this is essentially my role at Renewal is I'm, I'm being trained into a church leader. Um, and there's some of you sitting in the, in the crowd right now. There are future church leaders, future planners, pastors, visionaries, game changers sitting in our midst right now. And what I want to encourage you guys to do is take advantage of what Renewal wants to be about. If you believe that, that God has called you to be in ministry, tether yourself tightly to Renewal and say, train me up, whip me into shape, iron sharpens iron, now make me sharp. Highly recommended. That's been really good. It's, it's a great program. I could go on and on and on. Just snag me afterwards and we'll talk. I'll give you my sales pitch. On the other hand, when we say church multiplication, here's what we're not saying. We are not saying that we are about planting church services. There's a subtle difference here directly correlated with making disciples and making converts. If our goal was making converts and if our goal was to have some sort of veneer of making disciples, we would plant services. Everybody would have really cool clothes on and we would put a tons of gel in our hair, more than I already have, and we would have really good musicians and, and that would be our goal is to just plant services. But that, that's not what we're about. We're about multiplying disciples. And so when we say church multiplication, we're not saying planting church services. In fact, it, Playing in a church may be a bit of a misnomer. Like, we want to plant the gospel in communities and see the natural result that comes from the gospel being embedded in communities. When we say church multiplication, we're also not saying that we're going to plant for the sake of planting. Church planting is really cool these days. It is really popular, and I, and I think for good reason, and I think it is biblical, but we're not just going to plant haphazardly just to plant, just for the sake of planting churches, we plant churches. That's, that's not the way that we roll. We're not going to roll in senselessly or, or needlessly or without doing our background uh, research just so we can say we plant churches. And finally, when we say church multiplication, we're not saying that new churches equal good churches, nor are we saying that bad churches equal uh, excuse me, old churches equal bad churches. That is not at all what we're suggesting. What we're suggesting is that there needs to be an aggressive movement towards reaching people, and at this juncture in, in post-Christianity post United States, church planting seems to be the best means of doing so. Now, in order to prevent these core values, specifically church multiplication, from being just trite catchphrases, um, I'm going to suggest three ways that renewal can embody our value of church multiplication. The first one is pray. We need to know that God answers our prayers. I encourage you guys to pray for renewal's leaders. Uh, pray for clarity and mission. Pray that the Great Commission would re remain central to the leadership, that um, renewal would never become complacent with doing what it's always done, that renewal would always... Uh, be really aggressive in multiplying disciples in churches. Secondly, and I got a picture up here for us, um, pray for our church planning partners. Um, in the next few weeks, we're gonna, Renewal's going to have a bunch of little cards like this um, out at our connections desk that, so you can take, snag a couple, take them home with you, and, and pray over uh, the churches that we partner with. Some of these church plants are laboring in some really tough soil, Boston, uh, some out in Seattle, um, all across the United States, uh, maybe even have some international. Um, 
here soon we're going to have these made available for you guys. Take them home, put them on your fridge, pray for these people. Pray that these people are digging. They're doing some good, hard work. Um, and we want to encourage our people to pray, pray, pray for our brothers and sisters in these difficult areas. The second place I want to apply this is in our giving. So first we have pray, then we have give. In your seats, you guys saw a little first fruits envelope. First Fruits is um, an offering we're going to be doing all throughout the month of May. It's a special initiative where we're um, attempting to raise money, as you can see by this graph, to, to give to our first church plant, to give to Renewal's very first church plant. Um, 30, 33% of all the funds that come in from First Fruits are going to go directly to this plant. Just below that, you see that uh, the Renewal Leadership Institute is going to receive 33% of the funds. The Renewal Leadership Institute is where Renewal trains up its young whippersnapper leaders like myself. So with our first fruits, excuse me, that's a tongue twister. With our first fruits offering, 66% of this offering, whether directly or indirectly, is going to go towards planting new churches in areas that need good, healthy, Bible, gospel-centered churches. I can, I can give to something like that. As I stand now, I'm a result of many of the folks here. I'm a result of your generosity. A lot of folks have given in order to make this possible, that I could come be a part of the Renewal Leadership Institute. Um, it's been a really good program. It's um, it, essentially, just to break it down, it's a program where uh, you get to come alongside these pastors and you get to come on um, and, and spend some time in the trenches with these guys and they get to pour into you and disciple you and teach you what it means to be a godly minister. Your giving also enables renewal to replicate itself elsewhere. So think of this really sweet fellowship that we get to have week after week. Think of the, um, the good times that we've had at our family gatherings and, and all the things that renewal has gotten to do because people gave to make us possible. Let's give to make renewal possible elsewhere. The third way that we can embody this uh, core value of church multiplication is to go. Go on short-term mission trips. Many of our short-term mission trips are partnering with church plants. Um, we do something called Summer Link where we partner with Crosspoint and Clemson and we're going to be sending college students to places like Boston so that they can see the inner workings uh, of a church plant and some places that are just quite frankly more difficult to plant churches than Greenville, South Carolina. We want our people to go on short-term mission trips whether you're 120 years old or, or 14 years old we want you to go be a part of what, what God is doing elsewhere. If you're 120 years old that's probably ill-advised but you get the point. Consider today what it would look like to be a part of a new plant elsewhere. Could God be calling you, as you sit now, to leave renewal? Could God be calling you to Turkey to be a part of a plant? Could he be calling you somewhere else in the upstate to leave a plant? Just like was modeled in Acts, we want to be really open-handed with our people. We want to be good stewards of the leaders that God has given us. So consider, is God sending you elsewhere? Does God want you to be a part of a new work somewhere else? And the third place... Um, that we want you to consider going is going while you're staying. I know that doesn't make sense, but follow me. We want you to aggressively make disciples here and now. Do work. Get at it. At your jobs, in your neighborhoods, at the Y when you're playing basketball, make disciples. Make disciples. Place yourself in people's lives intentionally. Have people over for dinner. Make disciples here and now. Go while you're staying. Charles Spurgeon said uh, a long, long, long time ago that evangelism, or essentially disciple-making, will not continue in heaven. 
in the end, when, when, the, when the kingdom is finally and fully established, when Christ returns and, and makes all things right, we won't be making disciples anymore. It's something just for the interim. And so maybe today we could, we could celebrate this task that Jesus has given us, this task of making disciples by doing something else that's just in the interim. The Lord's Supper is a way that not only do we look back at what Christ accomplished for us in his death, but what we're awaiting, the wedding feast of the Lamb. This morning we have our elements split up on these two tables. What I'd like for uh, you guys to do is, uh, after I pray and finish up for us, I'd like to see you guys make, as best we can, try and come around this way and maybe go down the center aisle as you receive your elements. Pray as a family, uh, pray as a small group, uh, pray as roommates, do whatever you need to do, um, take your time. Um, this is a moment where we can, um, not, not with levity, not with, um, we don't want to take it too lightly, but this is, this is a moment where we can celebrate the wedding feast that is to come. I think of it like having a baby or getting married. It's, it's, it's a deep sort of celebration that, that gets in your bones. So this morning, celebrate what is to come um, when the Lord restores all things. So if you would pray with me and...